Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit. Bullshit is rampant. Total fucking bullshit. B -b -b bullshit. This makes no fucking sense. I mean, it's just bullshit. It's so good. Oh, I don't know what that yeah. has to do with our show today, Ray, but it was your idea was to put it idea. in there. So yeah. explain yeah. to everyone sure. what's going on there. Well, first of all, that's a very little-known recording of Cam and I in the shower. It wasn't always about sex. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I was I was reading over the, some of the some of the notes I had for the show, and we get to the part slowly where the war on drugs starts to turn around, as we're going to see, because we're coming near the end here, and, and states start fighting back, people start fighting back, communities start fighting back, and in the South, whenever you have a moment like this, you normally burst into, not quite as well as those people, um, hallelujah, or praise the Lord, or Jesus is with me, or whatever, so I just thought something like that, spiritual, uplifting, you know, God is with me, even though he doesn't exist, that's fine. That kind of moment that we're about to examine in the war on drugs. That's how we do it in the South. So, by the way, yeah. that uh, video is uh, Kirk Franklin and the family. Mm -hmm. uh, they're a, a gospel music choir. Kirk was born 1970, my age. Oh, wow. um, he is the king yes. uh, of urban gospel. Actually, and he, you got to check. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No. I was just going to say he's also the king of gestures while the uh, choir is singing. You, did you check out his moves? I think I pulled something just oh, watching man. him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I got a hernia just watching him. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's great. Chrissy and I watched that last night after you sent it to me. Just we, these big fucking shit-eating grins on our face. We love that. We keep saying we would go to church. <laughs> if we could find a church that they had that, that. Exactly. I'd go to church. Yeah. I would I would go to that church every awake. week, man, if right. I could get that kind of yeah. that kind of choir going on, man. Yeah. That guy performing at the front. <sighs> um 
Kirk Franklin. Yeah. Apparently in 2005, he appeared on the Oprah Winfrey show with his wife to discuss how he ended his pornography oh. addiction. Oh, sorry. I didn't know that. <laughs> I just, sorry, Kirk. I just, <laughs> see, he's come around. He's found God That's and God's when he, found when he, him. When he wrote that song, Joy, which right. was recorded by Whitney Houston and the Georgia Mass Choir, oh, wow. um, he apparently uh, was talking about pornography. That was what it was actually right. about. Joy gave him joy. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, listen, um, before we get into the war on drugs, yes. uh, just a, an announcement for people um, about this here series. You may have heard me talk about this on Facebook recently. Um I, I think we're going to wrap this uh, whole, not just the War on Drugs series, but the whole Bullshit Filter series up. Yeah. Uh, we've been doing it for, I don't know how long now, um, <sighs> year, probably Somewhere. year and a bit. Some and uh, in terms of in terms of the subscription levels, it's, I mean, there are some subscribers and thank you, yes, we appreciate you. that, but it's n- nowhere near the level of... of, of the Cold War or the Renaissance, uh, right. Alexander back in the day. <clears throat> so for some reason, this show hasn't hit its hit its stride. Um, for some reason, uh, people who like to subscribe to our history shows don't like to hear us talk about more contemporary issues. Mm. So it's not or us. the Cold War, right? You know? right. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> maybe it is us. <laughs> I was trying to. It's always. Spin I always it. assume it's us. Right. Okay. Me. Yeah. I always assume it's me. I do too. Um, yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, I think we'll. I think we'll wrap this up. Sadly, after the uh, war on drugs yeah. uh, series, which is going to finish uh, in two episodes, this one and the next one, we're going to have some other um, <clears throat> episodes. Like we we got a guy coming on who comes out of the gun industry uh, to talk about that in a couple of weeks, his experience in the gun industry. He's a gun owner. Right. <clears throat> it was just as a sort of a, a post-mortem. Uh, you got post- fucking Cheney on the post- show. Post uh, <laughs> sort of episode on their war on uh, right. gun control series. Right. But, yeah, so, look, if you're a subscriber to the show, we're going to replace it with something else. Um, yes. Uh, so stick around and we'll let you know what that is. I don't know what it is yet. We no. haven't even yeah. talked about what it is yet, but we yeah. will. Yes. Just this, I mean, this show, just for whatever reason, I thought it would be big. I thought it would be huge. Mm-hmm. Um, I get us out of the, the history, no. the card sort of old Ooh. history thing, Ooh. but no, it just hasn't. Whenever hasn't we try to get off. out, they put us right back in. I had to say that. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. So anyway, let's finish up. The war on drugs, because what I've always been interested in in telling this story is how did it start and then how did it finish? Right. We've done a lot about how it started, and we're going to talk about how it finished. Finishing is very important to us. It's, it's not over, no. obviously, right. but I think we can all see that unless something dramatic happens, right. we're in the last days the page, of the war on drugs. The page has been turned. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So when we finished up last time, uh, it was 1989, mass murderer George H.W. Bush was president. <laughs> May he get anally raped for eternity by the hundreds of thousands of civilians who were murdered on his watch. Uh, now, the percentage of high school seniors who said cocaine was easy or very easy to get in 1980 right. at the beginning of the Reagan-Bush administration was 48, 48% said cocaine was easy or very easy to get. Right. 
the percent now, now, but then of course Reagan and Bush's his Veep, they went hard yeah. on the war on drugs. Right, they spent billions. They, they 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 really you know did everything. They pulled out every trick right. in the dirty trick book. <laughs> To they had Nancy saying just say no that was gold, <laughs> so of course over the eight to ten years of the the Bush uh, Reagan um, era Reagan Bush right. White House, yeah. um, of course that number dropped substantially, right? Absolutely, um, because they've been they've been at war they've escalated the war on oh, drugs. Yeah. Everybody was holding hands, um, not smoking pot. So uh, what was what was the percentage of high school seniors who said cocaine was easy or very easy to get in 1990, Ray? Um, if you, what was the percentage last time? Did you say 4%? I'm trying to four, 40, 40, 40, <laughs> Pay attention, Ray. In 1980, right. it, 48% of high school seniors said it was easy or very easy to get. Okay. What, did, what percentage said it was easy in 1990? Now, you've tricked me with these percentages, percentages before, so I'm going to say, I'm gonna say uh, 50%. Mm, that, that would be going up. Yes. They've had a war on drugs, Ray. Well, you, but you've been they've, tricking they've, me they've, for weeks they've now. <laughs> 59, right? Oh. 59%. Oh, it's close. I'm learning. Yeah. So ten, after 10 years of the Reagan uh, era war on drugs, yeah. cocaine was much easier to get, according to high school students wow. in America. Wow. I mean, I think of cocaine as, I don't know, call me crazy, an adult drug. The idea of smoking pot in high school, yeah, okay, I can see that. And maybe if I could go back in time, I'd even try it. But the idea of doing cocaine while just a teenager seems completely alien to me. But I guess, like we showed a lot, you know, some people were doing it and it wasn't ruining their lives. Obviously, a small percentage was getting addicted or doing it on a regular basis. But some of them just tried it and moved on with their lives or still had a life. Yeah. 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 Uh, maybe they were doing it to... Survive uh, the war on drugs. Right. They were like, "Oh, God, I'm so sick of this war on drugs. I got to, got to do a line." I don't know. <laughs> now, there's an old saying, Ray, yeah. about doing the same thing and expecting different results. Yeah, as being the definition of insanity. Yes. It's a bit like us and podcasting. <laughs> My kids keep saying to me, "Why do you what? just keep doing podcasts and expect that you know yeah. all of a sudden one day right. you're going to become very popular?" Yeah. You know, you've been doing it for 14 years now. People don't like you. Just just accept that and do something else. I'm like, what? What am I going to do? I can't do anything I have else. no qualifications. I can't do anything else. I've spent 14 years yeah. mouthing off on the internet. That's, Who that's is it. going to hire yeah. me? Who's going to give me a job? No one's yeah, going to give me no, a job. I wouldn't. I mean, no offense. <laughs> <laughs> Not for anyway. This this yeah. You should stick with this. In 1988, the chief administrative judge. I stumbled across this last night. I was going through newspapers.com, right? Uh, the newspaper archives, just searching for you know war on drugs related stuff. Reagan era. Yeah, I came across this. I love this. In 1988, mm-hmm. the chief administrative judge of the DEA. 
guy by the name of Francis Young. Right. Now, I don't know what the job description of the chief administrative judge of the DEA is, but it sounds pretty important. Yes. The chief administrative judge of the DEA. Right, right. He, in 1988, Francis Young, Chief Administrative Judge of the DEA, recommended that the DEA should reclassify marijuana down from Schedule 1 to a less restrictive classification. He called it one of the safest therapeutically active substances known to man. Sounds like he was speaking from experience. (laughs) <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, he said he'd spoken to a bunch of medical professionals oh. and users and he'd read some studies and he decided, you know what, yeah. it's harmless. Yeah. <laughs> Let it go. It's 88, 1988. The DEA, wow. uh-huh. the DEA finally commented on this in 1990 right. uh, in the Bush White House years and said, he's crazy. <laughs> he's what? <fired. laughs> Yeah. So I didn't know. I tried, I, tried, I tried to look up what happened to him. I couldn't find out what happened to him. But, which which uh, should tell you. His career is probably over. Yeah. He, um, so the, you get the, like, the, I have to assume he's one of the most senior guys in the drug enforcement. Right. Uh, what's the A? Administration yeah. said weed is one of the most safest therapeutically active substances known to man. Wow. Does anyone listen? No. 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 He might as well put it in a report so they can shred that. Yeah. Give us something to shred. (laughs) Um, All right. We're supposed to... Talk at me, Ray. What have you got? (laughs) Oh, I was just going to go to... I was going to jump to 1991, the Harvard University uh, survey. If that's okay with you. Yeah, that's what I've got in my notes next. Yeah, get into it. Dovetail, that synced beautifully. Um, Yeah, so in uh, the Harvard University, a bunch of researchers in 1991 came out with a report. And they had uh, surveyed a bunch of oncologists, people that doctors had deal with tumors. And Heather and I, I I think I've told you the story. We had a... It's not a tumor! (laughs) It's not a tumor! Sorry, please go. Okay. Heather and I had an oncologist in our life, uh, practically a part of the family for a couple of years when she was going through her thing. So um, anyway, good guy, Dr. Jaziri. So anyway, so they they questioned a bunch of oncologists all over the country, and one third of them said that if pot was legal, they would prescribe it to help people with their nausea during chemo. And they said, you know what? Some of them actually not prescribed it, but recommended pot anyway, even though it was illegal, again, trying to deal with the nausea of chemotherapy. And this report comes out in May of 1991. Now, of course, as you can imagine, like you just said a second ago, this is going completely against the DEA and what they're saying, that marijuana has absolutely no medical use whatsoever. Don't even discuss it. And here are a bunch of doctors who hopefully know what's going on because they deal with this stuff day in and day out. They're saying something different than the government. Mm. (laughs) And this is the story. I just fucking shake my head. Like I've said on this show before, Mm -hmm. you know, going into this series 12 years ago, whenever it was we started, (laughs) I kind of had the assumption that medical science, yeah. um, for some reason, for the last 
hundred years had been saying that marijuana was bad for you, mm-hmm. um, and that the the politicians, the legislators, and the the, the media had all read those reports. That's why they were fear mongering ah, around it. Right. But what we've seen over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Is the medical and scientific community saying no? Really, it's yeah. it's not that bad. In fact, it's kind of good and has a lot of positive yeah. um, benefits. And the politicians just going, "No, yeah. shut up! <laughs> Fuck! Shuck it! Fucking shut up with your fact based evidence!" How dare you? Sir. Um, yeah, yeah. And the media ignoring it as well, and just going along with what the government wants. Like, yeah, I, I, I'm shocked, <laughs> shocked to. Keep gambling going on in this establishment, right? I can't believe how yeah. many times we've seen this. People coming out and just being shunned or yeah. ignored or reports or shredded. Right. Do you know the other part of that? Do you know how long um, chemicals or chemo has been around to treat cancer? I did not know this. No. The 1950s. In some form, chemicals, chemo treatment has been around since the 1950s. And as you can imagine, nausea has been around since the 1950s, at least related to this. So the point is, I I wonder why this, in some ways, I wonder why this didn't come up even sooner. And you know what? It could have maybe some doctors and uh, hippie doctors or whatever have, could have been saying for decades, you know, I I can't tell you this. I'm not supposed to say this. I can't get you any, but if you can find some pot while you're having your chemo treatment, that really might be the way to go. Um, But but again, since the 1950s, this, this has been an issue and still the doctors, they have limited um, ability to handle the nausea, but no one is able to get the Congress or whoever states uh, governments to get them to change their mind on pot because of the war on drugs. Mm. Well, meanwhile, in the early 90s, the AIDS epidemic was going into overdrive. Yeah. <clears throat> Since Bush's inauguration in 89, the number of drug-related AIDS cases had jumped from 12,000 to 16,000. By drug-related, I mean people who contracted HIV by using a dirty needle. It's believed that one-third of all of the people in the United States that had AIDS Mm -hmm. got it from a dirty needle. Yeah. The others got it from a combination of fucking each other up the ass. Right. As God intended. <laughs> or yeah. heterosexual, heterosexual sex right. uh, or blood transfusion. Mm-hmm. I, read a, I read a thing about a lady. I, I came across an obit in the media in my newspaper search last night. 33-year-old woman who um, was a mother of two who was on George Bush's, uh, like, AIDS advisory council. She's the only person on it who actually had AIDS. Wow. Um, she died age 33 from AIDS uh, around about 91, something like that, and had been hugely critical um, of uh, Bush's handling. Mm-hmm. Of, of the AIDS crisis, as you covered uh, very well on our news show mm-hmm. earlier this week. Uh, but, yeah, she got it from a blood transfusion. Hmm. Didn't Arthur Ashe, the tennis player, get it through a transfusion as well? 
Lieutenant uh, Black. Don't know who that is. Okay, never mind. Yeah, he got it, and it was a Mm. big deal. And that was still early on. So anyway, but yeah, I mean, between dirt and needles, transfusions, sex, and whatever, this is spreading, and the government still isn't really doing as much as they could be because the culture war, a lot of them saw this as just just punishment for the life choices they were making or however for their sexual orientation. Yeah, so I had a, I have a quote here that I found in a paper from George Bush. Um, he said, "Here's a disease where you can control its spread by your own personal behaviour. Mm-hmm. You can't do that in cancer, oh, you because that. no one can help it if they have to smoke a pack of cigarettes a day, Ray. <laughs> That's just uh, beyond right, right hum- human nature to stop that. But yeah. um." um you know, you don't need to get that blood transfusion. Right. You could, uh, <laughs> you could just have no blood. Toughen up. Um, yeah. No, he's it, it, he's obviously saying basically stop being gay. Right. And stop stop using drugs. That's yeah. it. That's all you have to do, and, and then, then you boom. won't get yeah. the AIDS. Yeah. yeah the, uh, it's he, it's easy. He literally he literally um, put out there that uh, he he recommended abstinence, and I was thinking, how many kids did he have? Five. Six, seven, I, I don't know exactly, but yeah, again, these are not real world solutions. And so the suffering and dying and contraction of HIV is going to go on and on. Yeah, imagine, imagine somebody telling, well, I was going to say, imagine somebody telling you you couldn't have sex again for the rest of your life. But then I realized, <laughs> well, shit, you know. I got a lot of making up not, to do. So uh, it's not going to make a huge difference <laughs> in your life. But. Hey, I might not be good at it. Or I don't last a long time, but I enjoy it. So don't take that away from me, okay? Yeah, but does the other person enjoy it? Is Not the question. really my. I don't care. <laughs> I'm normally asleep soon afterwards anyway, so it doesn't matter if they did or not. Yeah, Just get yourself a right. cab and go home. I, I saw you posted a video of your uh, dog. What's your dog's name? Finn. Finn. Finn, yes. yeah, in the snow, yes. looks lovely. So pretty. Yes. Winter wonderland outside your window yeah, right now. fucking cold. I wish I was in Australia right now. Oh, <laughs> it's so fucking hot, man. <laughs> killing me. It's killing me. Anywho, um, a third yeah. of all of those AIDS cases were coming from dirty needles. Jeez. Obvious solution was to provide clean needles oh. for drug users. There, there, there had been some tests run that were working well. Pharmacists didn't want junkies coming into their stores to buy needles, right. and, and junkies tended not to do that either mm. because you have to get up off your couch to do that, and, and it takes time and effort. They just want the smack in the blood. Amen. Um, parks and sanitation workers didn't want to have to handle discarded yeah. needles that potentially were carrying the AIDS virus. So dirty yeah. needles was a was a huge a problem. Yeah. Um, so there were needle exchange programs set up around about 1990, trial ones in places like New Haven, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, I only know of the existence of New Haven, Connecticut, because uh, Van Halen did a live concert video <laughs> right? in New Haven in 1986. That's good enough. With their uh, right. new lead singer, Sammy Hagar. Uh, I remember watching that video as a teenager and going, well, he's not David Lee Roth, right. is he? Where's um, <clears throat> They had a van mm-hmm. that uh, drove around handing out clean needles. Yeah. If you brought back your own 
your, your own old needles, right? You got clean ones in return. Just drop them in the drop them in the little bin. Yeah. Give you clean needles. We're driving right. We're right at the front of your drug right. den. Right. Um, you don't have to travel very far. No one's going to get hurt. It's all safe. In the first few months of this trial in New Haven, two out of ten needles that were returned to the van. Mm-hmm. Um, no, let me go back a step. In the first few months, two out of every ten needles that were handed out right. were returned to the van. Yeah. And 68% of those carried the AIDS virus. Oh, God. Now, what are those so many people dying or get or contracting HIV? Two years later, mm-hmm. seven in 10 out of the needles were coming back. And the percentage of those carrying the AIDS virus was down to 44. Nice. So this is working. We need to stop it. Yeah. Okay. Just my initial yeah. reaction. Uh, one, one. Well, you would think that would be everybody's initial reaction, right? <laughs> right. Um, and also, uh, after that two years, one out of every six addicts participating in the needle exchange program had gone into drug treatment. Wow. So, I, I assume that's just with the contact with the people in the van, right? They're bringing back their dirty needles. They're getting clean needles, and the people in the van are saying, "Hey, you know what? Here, take this pamphlet. Yeah, there's a pamphlet on place you can go. No, no pressure, but if you want to get off the shit, right. um, and, and and you know maybe avoid getting AIDS and dying young, right. um, here's here's a place you can go, and it was working. One out of every six addicts was yeah. getting into treatment." But what was the Bush administration's uh, response to all of this, right? The Bush administration was not so fast. It was completely unacceptable. Um, Bob, Bob Martinez, who's in charge of the Office of, of National Drug Policy, excuse me, National Drug Control Policy, said the the topic of exchanging needles is not even to be discussed. And his quote is, "We cannot allow our concern for AIDS." to undermine our determination to win the war on drugs. I can't think... I mean, even that statement probably made the devil go, God damn, man! I mean, I cannot imagine a more heartless reaction. But this guy is in charge of the national drug control policy for Bush. I mean, it doesn't get any more cold than that. Yeah. They have a zero-tolerance position on drugs... And uh, despite the war on drugs failing massively, right. they think we can't lose. Yeah. Stay the what stay did the George co- Bush say something about? Yeah, S- stay the course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> stay the course even when it's not working. Right, because you don't want to look like you're yeah. weak. But but just real quick for because I was doing a little bit of reading. Those people who participated in the needle exchange. I mean, just imagine living. You're homeless. You're in a build a, a building that's been abandoned or whatever. You're shooting up whatever, and someone comes along and and actually seems like they halfway care about whether you live or not. I mean, that just had to have a very positive experience uh, f- for those people. And I think a lot of them, as probably uh, the people who created this but had anticipated, then actually the, the, someone was caring about you and showing, um, you know, it's an act of kindness. We care if you live or die. And I think the people, to a degree, responded to that. And here's the um, Bush administration and Reagan and, to a degree, Clinton doing the exact opposite, saying, 
we don't care. And we're showing that by our actions, our inactions. Yeah. 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 You know, this whole stay the course thing is kind of ignorant. Like we could say with our bullshit filter series, we're going to stay the course. Right. Just keep doing it regardless of the fact that no one cares. (laughs) No. We're going to go, you know what? It's not working. Let's do something different. Try it. Change it up. Yeah. Oh, I just have I to could turn- take that approach to podcasting, but right. you know, I did yeah. that once. Yeah, you know, I took I took five years off, and then you, right, just as I thought I was out, you yeah. dragged yeah. me back in. You're welcome. So it's all your fault. It is my fault. I I just have to say one more thing about Bob Martinez because as we were going getting ready for these last two episodes, I was looking up people to see what happens to them after the fact, and you might want to get ready to do a quick search on. Uh, Quick search on YouTube. So Bob Martinez, before this moment, about two years before this moment, back in 1989, he was um, either the governor of Florida or he was a politician of Florida. He ordered state prosecution uh, prosecutors to, de- to determine whether the Miami area rappers two life, <clears throat> excuse me, two life cruise album nasty as they want to be if it violated Florida obscenity laws. And as a result, record store owners were arrested for selling the album, and members of the group were arrested after a particular concert. Now, all those who were arrested, the store owners, the the band members, they were eventually acquitted, but it took time, and as you can imagine, they had to spend a decent amount of money uh, hiring lawyers just to make sure that they were acquitted. But their next album, Banned in the USA, uh, their follow-up album, uh, Two Life Crew, they had a song on that called Fuck Martinez. So this is, yeah, just, they were just sticking it to him because again, I mean, this is going back to what Jim Morrison and Elvis Presley shaking his hips. It's, it's a song, it's, it's lyrics or whatever. They're not hurting anybody, but people like this with their mindset was trying to come down on them and win the culture war. Bob Martinez, by the way, was the first ever governor of Florida to um, have Spanish ancestry. Mm-hmm. He was the mayor of Tampa from 79 to 86, and then he was the governor of California from 87 to 91 before he became Bush's yeah. drug czar. But he's he's a dick. He so, might as well be a rich white guy. He's but a he's dick. a dick. Yeah. 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 He's a dick. Yeah, all these guys are dicks. <laughs> Um. So uh, back to back to uh, Bush and AIDS. Um, you know they were just determined. We're not going to do anything to prevent the spread of AIDS if it has to make it easier for people to do drugs. Right. Um, now, according to the Washington Post, by 1990, U.S. Customs Service agents had confiscated more than. $50 million of drugs using sniffer dogs at border crossings and airports. Damn. Sorry, more than $50 million of cash, not of drugs, of cash. Damn. Just take people's money. Um, which had been forfeited to the government. Right. So you, you, you're going through a border crossing, you're coming through the airport, sniffer dog comes up, it sniffs, sniffs your pockets. Right. If it... If it if it does if it barks, I don't know what the dogs do. They, they just bark. they bark or they yeah. they do a little. I, I, I see like pointing hunter dogs. I'm thinking of a hunting dog yeah. from like a Disney cartoon. They right. just go straight as an arrow, doing, and make a little doing noise, and their tail goes straight out, and they're pointing at you. Anyway, barking probably sounds more realistic. Yeah. Uh, if a sniffer dog smells cash, 
That's got, that that, yeah. that is tainted with cocaine on your person. Sure. The police can confiscate that cash. Damn. Do I get a receipt? What's my now, chances of getting my money back? Uh-huh. Very little. Now, <laughs> if it's if the if the cash is contaminated with drugs, it's therefore drug money sure. and the cops can just take it. Now, a guy from the ACLU said everything the dog does, no matter what it is, the police claim it's a hit. If the dog barks, it's a hit. It if burps. the dog sits down, right. it's a hit. If the dog fell over dead, they'd probably <laughs> claim the scent of cocaine killed him. <laughs> but here's the thing. Right. The Pittsburgh Press did a study in 1991 mm-hmm. where they determined that virtually all cash in the United States at that time was tainted with enough cocaine <laughs> to trigger a dog's response. Oh my god. Two different two different private labs tested currency from banks in 11 cities and found that as much as 96% of it showed traces of cocaine. Hell yeah. That's rock and roll. <laughs> but so you you might have just gone to the bank that day, got some cash out. Yeah. ATM, boom. Stuck it in your pocket. Right. You're, you're traveling. You're going on holidays. You're going to need some cash. Tipping the bellboy. Uh, <laughs> the dog goes, oi, there's cocaine on that. Boom. Fucking we're taking it. Oh my you're God. like, hey, I just got it out the bank. Yeah. Not my problem. You're a, you're a fucking drug dealer. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, my God. And like you said. I just love that. 90, 96% of the currency in the United States was carrying traces of cocaine. <laughs> You gotta love American capitalism, and as you as you said or earlier alluded to, most of them most of them did not get their money back. So this the, the government or whatever agency they're just making money. This is working brilliantly for them, and of course that money goes to pay for cops mostly. Right. So it's it's a self funded agency. You can yeah. you can go out there, take money, put it back in your coffers. That's how you you pay for your your Yeah. customs uh, agents and your Christmas customs services is by yeah. taking money. Yeah, you get to keep a big chunk of that. Jeez. So clean money right. put in the same drawer as dirty money will make a dog bark. Cuz it, it, like, it's not like drug drug dealers or drug users have been handling all this money. Clean money put in with dirty money, cocaine will just sort of, you know, it's like Set dust. It It'll get on it. And and police and federal agents, what do you think they did with the dirty money that they collected? Um, I'm only guessing, but I guess they, there was an account, a special account set up, and it was deposited. And did they use it to take care of any shortfalls in their budgets or increase their budgets? Yeah, probably, but I'm talking about the actual cash. So oh, they actually oh, take the sorry. cash, they seize they seize the dirty cocaine cash, right. take it to a bank, deposit it <laughs> into the bank. Somebody else comes into that bank five minutes later, <laughs> says, I'd like to take out some cash. They give him the dirty cash. Oh, that's brilliant. He goes through an airport, right? gets busted by custom service agents. They go, oh, I've taken that, put it back into the bank. Boom, 96%. <laughs> That's like, that's like getting a hundred percent return on your investment. 
That's they must have had brilliant. Yeah, like a hundred percent strike rate right. of anyone the dog sniffed. <laughs> they just couldn't. They couldn't get enough sniffer dogs. They could have taken lost- all of the money. <laughs> In America, if they had enough sniffing dogs. We lost five dogs today. Yeah, it was just, it was just too much for them. Um, we're going to have a funeral later. Then go get some pizza. And, of course, you know, as we've talked about in previous episodes, they didn't need an excuse or a warrant nope. or anything like that to pull you over and take your money. Yeah. A bark is as good yeah. as a, I don't know what, confession. A nod is as good <laughs> as a wink to a blind man. Um, but then, yeah. and this is where... The story starts to turn. Okay. In 1992, a group called the Sentencing Project, mm-hmm. still around today. I got a lot of data from them over the course of this series. Nice. They're a tiny little liberal nonprofit organization. They had been tracking increases in incarceration since 1981. Right. And they issued a series of reports. Sure that quickly disappeared into obscurity, of course. No one really cared. Right. But then at some point they stumbled onto some wording that actually got some traction in the media. And the wording was this. America has more black men in prison than in college. Wow. Now, I remember this. I remember when that particular phrase was big, and it it literally made you stop your mind, your your eyes just kind of go unfocused, and you sit there and you just think about it, and that's when you realize something is crazy. Crazy is going on. Let me ask you real quick, as a marketer, I mean, you can't plan moments like this, but but I, I guess marketers' ultimate dream would be to be able to create a line that they know for a fact is going to either go viral, viral, or is going to catch the imagination of the people. But I guess it's just one of those things. It's the right sentiment at the right time with the right conditions that just takes a, a society or whatever by culture uh, by storm and it just spreads and makes everybody rethink what uh, about their opinion on a particular subject yeah um you know you 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 spend your life trying to come up with things that'll cut through oh, the noise right. and you know if you're lucky sometimes uh, one of those does and it and it blows up i guess but it's just interesting that that was the wording that got people to pay attention yeah more black men in prison than in college one in four are under control of the criminal justice system jail prison probation or or parole they said one in four black men yeah. in america between you and me and not as good as a wink, wasn't that the idea to <laughs> remove these people yes. from society? I mean, let's let's be honest. Let's be this is a war on them. You know, we we'll keep their women and their kids, I guess, until their kids grow up, especially if they're male. But as far as the black males are concerned, yeah, they need to learn their place and, and where better than in jail. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not that they need to learn their place. I think it's we don't want them voting. Uh-huh. And we don't want them pushing for systemic change right. of the country. That's certainly, you know, I've thought a lot about this, mm-hmm. and, and I, I'm going to talk a lot about this over the next couple of episodes, but we know that a lot of the racist legislation in the early 20th century was pushed through in the South mm-hmm. uh, in, you know, the new constitutions were written, and that, that, that was written by Democrats, as we talked about. Right. Um, Democrats were very racist 
in the early part of the 20th century, Southern Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, then by the, I think, I guess after LBJ and the Civil Rights Act in the mid-60s, late-60s, it starts to change and the Democrats become more popular with the African-American population. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's the Republicans that want to shut out uh, the blacks from voting. Right. Um, and, and the blacks and the hippies. We know we talked about how Nixon wanted to get rid of the hippies and, uh, you know, the, the anti-war activists as well as the African-Americans. Um and then, so since that period, though, since the early 70s onwards, why have the Democrats like Joe Biden, as we'll see, Bill Clinton, mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter to the – Jimmy? well, actually, Jimmy Carter's probably a good case in point. We know that during Carter's presidency for the first few years, they actually were very, very, very light-fingered touch right. on the war on drugs. Yeah. And, in fact, I think 11 states – decriminalized or legalized marijuana during the early part of the Carter administration. Mm -hmm. But then at the end of his term, when they started to run for re-election, he started to crack down on marijuana because he didn't want the Republicans or I guess um, even other people in the Democratic Party Mm -hmm. to be able to claim that his administration was soft on drugs. Soft on communism, soft on drugs. Those were the two big yeah. insults that uh, your your political opponents could throw at you um, in you know since after World War Two, right? Um, in particular, and so I think what we see with the the Democrats from that time onwards, from the late seventies onwards, even though they they know that the Black population, if they are going to vote, are probably going to vote Democrat. Right. Um, you don't. You, you, the biggest, the bigger political challenge for you is being called soft on drugs. If you can't make yourself appear hard, yeah. as hard as the Republicans, then you're going to get called soft on drugs, and it's such a big thing in the American mindset because right. <clears throat> you've always got to have an enemy. Yeah. Um, and you know, after Bush, Soviet Union's gone, baby. Say yeah. you're soft on communism after 1991. It's going to get you nowhere. I mean, no one cares anymore. It's all over. Yeah, we need a whipping boy. You know, Boris Yeltsin's drunk on a tank. I mean, <laughs> they're not a threat anymore. <laughs> no one cares. Right. He's grooming. He's he's in the back rooms grooming Vladimir Putin. <laughs> but you know, no one no one cares. So you have to be. Uh, so when Clinton comes along, he's got to be even harder. Even though. Theoretically, right. you would think the Clinton administration would be um, friendlier towards the African-American population and therefore not as harsh with its drug sentencing. Uh, he, can't, he can't do that. Well, he feels he can't do that. Right. A, a person of integrity would say, listen, we're going to do the right thing regardless of the political consequences, I think. But I, but I think the political math, to give him... Uh, you know, a get out of jail freak. I think the political math, and I only know this from watching the West Wing, is the the, the political uh, math is, listen, if we do that, if we go soft on drugs, 
um, we'll get kicked out of office. If we get right. kicked out of office, we can't, we can't do any yeah. good. Can't help it. So the math is we have to stay hard on drugs. Yes, we're going to put millions of young black men into jail. Uh, we're going to prevent millions of people from having access to marijuana, which could make their lives better. Right. But at least we'll stay in office and then we can do right. some other good things. Not sure what good things he actually <laughs> did, apart from get blowjobs from interns. That's but, a good uh, thing. Oh. No, I, I think yeah, the, other, yeah. the other part of that is we'll stay in office so the Republicans aren't in office, and so they can't do bad things. So we might not do good things, but we can currently not do bad things. So, so I think that was part of the mentality, too. It's better that we're doing the bad right. things. Than letting the other guys right. do the bad things. Because we won't things. be as bad. Yeah, it will. will be more. For, uh, I guess forgiven. But and yeah. if 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 I'm not in office doing the bad things, I'm not going to get rich. I want to get yeah. rich. The Clintons came out of it rich. Oh, the yeah. Clintons are filthy, filthy, filthy the rich. Yeah. They weren't. Yeah. They weren't rich when they became when they got into the White House. Right. Came out of the White House. Write a couple books. Filthy rich. Give some speeches. Yeah. Get a but get. Put on boards for your advice. Get paid a shit ton of money. That's what I guess Tim Ryan. Is well, they set up the Clinton. The Clinton they set up the Clinton Foundation, yeah. so people could pour all money of the into world's that. despots right. and dictators well, are throwing money into it in the, order to curry favors. I think the word you're looking for is strong man or patriot. Yeah. Okay. No, uh, <laughs> no, but but like you were saying a minute ago, I mean things are going to start turning. By 1991, the average person on the street is is clearly recognizing the consequences of the war on drugs. It's not working. Drugs are still around. Drugs are still available. Drugs are still relatively cheap. But there are a lot of people being hurt, hurt by it. Their lives are being ruined. And so not only does this report come out, but then um, you know it's getting bad for you when the the newspapers start to turn on you because, like you said a minute ago, the newspapers were not even conducting research of their own or, or, or whatever. They were just towing the line of whatever the government said. But now they, even the newspapers are doing it, even on their front pages, and this is in major cities all over the country, they're going on to say that blacks were arrested more often, offered fewer opportunities for bail, and giving longer sentences than whites. So they are they are pretty, they're starting to nail this on the head. Basically, their core message is blacks were being punished for possessing small amounts of drugs and giving given very long sentences. So everybody, it's like the cat is out of the bag now. The veil has, has been lifted from people's eyes, and now they can see what should have been obvious for some time. It's been a war on blacks the entire time. We're talking very small amounts of drugs, very long sentences. They've lost their right to vote even when they do get out. I mean, this is just something that is not working, and they've been spending billions of dollars uh, undertaking this for many years. And this, you know, uh, comes after the Rodney King oh, yeah. uh, riots. What year was that? Like 86, uh, I'm guessing. Let me get to that. I'm looking it up. Uh, Google 91, it. 1991. 91, March 3rd. 91. Early in the morning, yeah. March 3rd, 1991. He was driving home while he was drinking with some friends, watching sports or something. Driving home, cops pull him behind him. He tries to, you know, he admitted he tried to evade um, being pulled over. And eventually he is pulled over. He's trapped and he and some friends, the friends get out. He does not get out at first. And when he does, he is still drunk. He, there is um, some resistance on his part, which to my mind does not justify what happened to him afterwards. Yeah, he gets the crap yeah. completely beaten out of which, him by some white LAPD. Yeah. And that and happens all the time. Obviously... 
But yeah, but this got caught on video <laughs> and it went went viral before we knew what viral was. And right. um, so, so I, I think you know when that happened. Yeah. It, a lot, a lot of Americans went, "Oh shit!" Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't we don't treat black men very well in this yeah, country. Yeah. And and I. And then I so then I think the sentencing project stuff about the, you know the the disproportionate number of black men in prison as a result of drugs um, got people's attention because of Rodney King. Right, right. It was it was it was you know in every it was in the the, the national consciousness yes. um, sort of the the inherent racism in America. USA Today did a national story around about this time. Drug war focused on blacks. The opening line was, urban blacks are being detained in numbers far exceeding their involvement in the drug trade. Then you had not only the media but local bar associations, um, particularly in places like Boston and in New York, they started coming out with their own reports just talking about all of the waste Mm -hmm. in the justice system as a result of the drug war, the racial disparities, the injustice, the futility of it. Judges started speaking out too, talking about how many minorities that were coming into their courtrooms for minor drug offences versus whites, when everyone knew that whites, much bigger percentage of the population, do much more Mm -hmm. uh, drugs than the blacks, but the black people in their courtrooms far outweigh the number of whites. You read about this guy, Norman Lanford, the criminal court judge in Houston. Oh, let me just say this real quick before we move on about the Rodney King thing. My father and I got into an action. We hardly ever talked to each other. We got into a screaming match about the Rodney King thing. Now at the time he was, he's retired from the uh, air force and he was working at a local jail. No big deal. He's just, you know, making sure these guys behave themselves, but he literally, and, and this is important in that all he saw every day was mostly non-whites, Mexicans, Latinos, blacks, or whatever, and he, and he didn't see the best of the best. If I can borrow from uh, Trump for a second, they, they're not sending us their best. And so by his reality, his perception, he didn't think the cops overreacted. He's like, look, Rodney King is still trying to get up, and so you have to beat him until he gets down and stays down. And so he and I just went into it, but I, but I thought about it later, and I was just like, well, all he knows from his, from his experience at his job is that they're all dangerous, and, and, and it's the blacks we're talking, let's be honest about it, that they're all dangerous, um, you can't trust them, and they deserve what they get because they keep misbehaving and they keep getting in jail. I will just never forget that argument with him, and then later on realizing that all he knew was what he saw in his job, and that just... And, but if you're a cop and you just see that all the time... How could you? And you go after these people, and of course, whether they have just the tiniest amount of drugs on them, you treat them like they're uh, an evil person. But how could you not get? How could your soul not get twisted and your perception be skewed seeing stuff like that day in and day out? Mm. Yeah, I I did find uh, Texas Judge Norman Lanford. Uh, like a lot of these judges, he got tired of these very small amounts of rock cocaine coming before him. And this is just, I mean, we're talking like a gram, half a gram or whatever. But like, I think we're like we said before in Texas, if you got caught a third time, you could get 25 years. So he's like, this is kind of crazy. So he starts tracking his own cases and, and tallying up uh, the results. Yeah, well, I think he does. It's more than just his own cases. Ah. It's all of Houston's cases. Ah, okay. But yeah, 
And, and now, first of all, let me say that Lanford considered himself a law and order Republican. Mm-hmm. So he's not your Democrat judge here. Bleeding he's heart he's liberal. hardcore. Right. So he did some numbers. He said that more than 2,500 people from the county where he was had been sent to prison in 1991 for holding less than a gram of cocaine. In one year. Most of them had... Yeah. Most of them had half that much right. gone to jail for holding, not dealing, right. holding a half a gram of cocaine. Mm-hmm. Now, three quarters of them were black, even though blacks constitute, constituted mm-hmm. less than a fifth of the county's population. Damn. That's targeting. Let me say that again. That is targeting. They're less than a fifth of the county's population, but three quarters of them coming into the courtroom for cocaine possession right. uh, were black. <sighs> now, the average sentence of a minor drug possession in Houston that year was eight and a half years. Oh, my God. Oh. For holding half a gram of cocaine. Your life is ruined. It's over. You're going to spend the rest of your years after you get out of jail Your life. Surviving. Your wife's life, uh, your children's life. Yeah. 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 Now, Lanford, this judge, figured that it cost Houston taxpayers $22 million in 1991 to imprison all the people convicted of holding less than half a gram of cocaine. Oh. He identified 2,113 people uh, imprisoned in that year mm-hmm. for possessing amongst them Seven ounces of cocaine in total. Oh, my God. 2,100 people gone to jail. Between them, if you added up all the cocaine they had, seven ounces of cocaine. I could snort seven ounces like it was nothing. You do. You (laughs) snort seven gram rocks. That's how you roll. Winning. (laughs) Win here, win there, win, win everywhere. (laughs) That's ins- um, now, yeah, he, that's insane. he said, we're occupying a 25-year space in prison for a guy about whom all we can prove in his entire criminal career right. is ownership of $40 worth of crack. That's true. I mean, you don't even have to be a nice person. You can just see that as a waste of resources and a waste of money. And that's exactly what it is. And what ha- what happened to oh, Lanford after he said well, all this? Well, let me tell you. He stood up. He said his piece. He made this stuff known. And because this is Texas, he lost in the next primary. So his ass was out of there for speaking up. Even though he was um, bringing up facts, it didn't matter. The judge done got bounced. Yeah. Now, this whole thing where judges in your country need to be elected, That's I find insane. ridiculous Absolutely. in the first place. Absolutely. Doesn't happen here. I don't think it happens anywhere outside of the U.S. Yeah, we, it's not everywhere, um, but it's enough. It's enough in, in, in the States. Too much. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So when he came up for re-election in early 1991, an, an assistant district attorney hammered him in the media for being soft on drugs <sighs> and knocked him out. Yeah. Tell me about Schmoke. Now, on the other hand... Schmoke. Schmoke. <laughs> this is the greatest name ever for a drug campaigner. The mayor of Baltimore right? in the late 1980s, his name was Kurt Schmoke. S-C-H-M-O-K here. Schmoke and a pancake, Schmoke. they used to call him. Schmoke and me, we got him. Yeah. 
He was the mayor of Baltimore in the late 80s and argued that drugs should be decriminalised. Oh. Now, when he ran again in 1991, yeah. still arguing against the war on drugs, Ooh. he won with a bigger <clears throat> margin than he had four years previously. So what I'm hearing is Baltimore is not Texas. <laughs> I guess, yeah. yeah. Um, so he made a lot of sense. Kurt Schmoke. Yeah. Uh, black guy, um, Baltimore. Yeah. He was the uh, first African-American to be elected mayor in Baltimore. Wow. Um, currently the president of the University of Baltimore, former dean of the Howard University School of Law. Wow. The smoke has risen. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Okay. He was a Rhodes Scholar. Went to Yale, got nice. a degree in history, was uh-huh. a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University, graduated Harvard Law School. Wow. Um, so, you know, Smart. not nothing, this guy. Yeah. He was part of the Carter administration. Smart enough to be a podcaster. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We just get all of our knowledge from books. Don't have to be smart. <laughs> and. Yeah. For fans of The Wire, he appeared in two episodes. Are you serious? Of The Wire. That is awesome. Kurt Schmoke. I gotta look that yeah. up. He, he had a bit part as a health commissioner and an advisor to uh, the mayor of Baltimore. That is hilarious. Um, if fans of The Wire, uh, if you remember Bunny Colvin, when Bunny set up New Amsterdam, mm-hmm. um, Hamsterdam, they call it. Right. It was. Uh, Bunny, Bunny, who was a police captain, set up this uh, district inside of Baltimore where drugs were able to be sold, not legally, but where the cops would let you. Right. His idea was, look, let's just get it off the streets because yeah. there's all this violence yeah. that takes place Focus it. in the streets where there are civilians walking around and kids are getting shot. Right. Let's just – we've got all these abandoned projects – uh, housing projects. Yeah. Let's move all of the. They rounded up all the drug dealers and say, "Listen, um, move here. Mm-hmm. If you stay where you are, we're going to bust you. If you move in into this block right. where there's no one living and do your business here, we won't lay a finger on you. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Just get it off the streets. And it worked, right? Get it out of the suburbs. Get it out of the neighborhoods. It worked. Yeah, and so they did." And it started to work, and violence in the streets dropped massively because ah. people weren't, you know, dealers weren't fighting over right. corners in districts where people lived. Um, but what happened next? But of course, the gov- the the mayor freaked the fuck out and said, "You you you've you've legalized drugs," and he goes, "Well, no, I'm just <laughs> saying, do it over here." Yeah. And he gets fired, and they go, you can't do that. He goes, but it's working. We yeah. don't care if it's working. You can't do it. Do you remember what set that off? Their arrest records, their stats were going down. Uh, I thought it was uh, I think a I'm kid getting... got killed in a oh, maybe. shootout I'm trying... or something. But... I just remember on a couple occasions they were getting bitched out about their stats. I thought maybe that was a stat, yeah. stat issue. I remember Bunny standing up in front of the – you know, the room full of the cops and just railing on how ridiculous the whole thing was. Yeah. Just the war on drugs. <laughs> what, what, what did Carver say? You can't call this shit a war. Why not? War's end. Yeah. Oh, I think I powerful. played that in an earlier episode. Yeah. Um, 
so anyway, Schmoke. Schmoke <laughs> uh, was in the wire. Right. And he got re-elected. Now, um, where are we at with time? Oh, we hit an hour. Shit. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. So, yeah. Yeah. So the, so, the, so the people are turning, the newspapers are turning, uh, lawyers are starting to turn, even judges are bringing this up. Everybody's noticing, be, and not only because of the Rodney King beating, but that's just uh, exacerbating it. You know what? We've been doing this for a long time. Lives are being destroyed. Money's being wasted. And nothing is changing. Something's got to give. People are starting to wake up and smell that this stuff that's been going on since Nixon isn't having the desired results. And then in 1992, Bill Clinton confessed pot in smoker but not, not inhaler <laughs> gets elected. And you would think he would do something about it, but as we'll see in the next episode, yeah. no. Nah. But it changes, the, the tide turns without him. Um, so that's the show. We'll be back uh, next week for the last Aww. episode of our War on Drugs series. Mm-hmm.